Freddie knows Ramirez. Maria, 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 excuse me. Maria, Maria, oh my God. Maria, Ramirez is a. Welcome. Uh, we are back fresh off of watching Victor Polso. Damn near upset. Upset Jose Mamir. Tom, take over. All of Bradley's concussions caught up with him at once. Amen. So something that I read that, like, Roland sent me this tweet. And uh, it was one of those things where you don't know what you're expecting. So he sends me this tweet, and it says, Ruslan Provodnikov caught up with them, or something like that. That has no context to me sent randomly. So I open up the tweet, because so, I could see that there was some other link in there. So I'm like, I gotta see what this is. And I click on the tweet, and this dude quote-tweeted Timothy Bradley saying or, or failing to say Ramirez and the guy was I'm pretty sure Ruslan Provodnikov's manager implying that Provodnikov <laughs> like clearly gave Bradley a very severe concussion which I know I mean he pretty much did but damn man you don't gotta come out and say it like that it's so, true but he shouldn't say it <clears throat> yeah exactly and I mean it caught me off guard I did laugh pretty hard and, and then I was just kind of like you know cringed a little bit it's like dude you know, Timothy Bradley, for whatever you can say about Timothy Bradley, like Timothy Bradley does come off as like a really good guy. Um, so anyway, we had Jose Ramirez. He got a majority decision over Victor Polstow. Um, Arizona Laura, he got a decision over Greg Vandetti. We're going to get into both of these cards. Daniel Dubois also got himself uh, a knockout over um, really like the James Ellsworth of the heavyweight division, if we're being really, really blunt about things. <laughs> So let's get into this Jose Ramirez fight. Um, Ramirez looked explosive at times. He looked fast at times. He looked strong at times. But one thing that he did not look, at least in my eyes, was really defensively sound. And like, look, no one's surprised at this, I don't think. So he gets a decision over Victor Polso. We got to ask this question. So let's start here, Tom. By the way, thanks for listening, guys. Um, or girls, I don't know. We could have like one or two girl listeners. I don't know. But uh, if you like the podcast, rate and review, all that stuff. I'm going to skip all that so we can go right into this. Do you think the majority decision um, and the performance overall for, for Jose Ramirez, or, or at least the outcome, the fact that this was a majority decision, do you think it was more due to the fact that Jose Ramirez came out kind of like looking bad, that he looked bad in the fight? Or do you think that Victor Postal was much better than anyone anticipated and that he actually performed really well in this fight? I think it was just the outcome is basically exactly what we expected. I mean, we talked about this last Who week. and I expected a majority decision? I, I, I did. I don't know. I mean, oh, okay. you can never this call that right here. Let's hear this. But, oh, I mean, look, I last week I compared this to the Jose Zapata fight, mm -hmm. which was a fight that I thought was close and edged Jose Zapata. The official result of that was a majority decision. And I mm -hmm. said in this fight, don't be surprised if this fight looks like that fight. This was not a top rank match made fight this was not jose ramirez against someone outside of the top 300 like michael conlon's fights or elvis rodriguez's fight on the undercard you know this was uh victor postal against someone he had to fight because of a wbc mandatory someone who signed to the pbc who has been a pretty solid guy you know um crawford has blown out a lot of guys postal took him the distance uh, Josh Taylor's blown out a lot of guys. Victor Postal made that fight competitive. Um, 
you know, it's it's like Victor Postal is a solid top top fifteen guy who's pretty awkward. He's tall, and I, you know, I just I Jose Ramirez has never been a dominant type of guy. You know, Jose Ramirez, you know, knocked out Maurice Hooker, but he's looked very questionable in a lot of fights. You know, Amir Mom fight was a distance fight. Antonio Orozco was a distance fight. Uh, guys who have been knocked out by other fighters. Um, yeah, and I, you know, this to me looked like it was going to be one of the harder fights for Jose Ramirez, who's not really a dominant guy anyway. So, yeah, I, I'm really not surprised by the outcome at all. Um, <clears throat> interesting. So, ha- with that in mind, what you said there, were you at all surprised? Did did, did Jose Ramirez underperform or or even overperform based off of? how you felt coming in because you did have a pretty unique take on this fight. Even the most um, positive Victor Pulso people with the out, with the outs, um, with the exception of the clowns out there who thought Victor Pulso was some big puncher as evidence from this fight. He's not a big puncher. Um, but yeah. How do you evaluate Jose Ramirez's performance then? I just, this is who I think Jose Ramirez is. And this is who <laughs> Jose Ramirez is, you know, he's not, He's not a hugely dominant guy. And Victor Postal wasn't, you know, a, a punching bag, you know, and unless uh, Jose Ramirez or unless Postal had lost his chin during the quarantine and layoffs and age, you know, and, unless that had really caught up with him, I, I kind of expected this was going to be a tricky fight. So um, it's the right way of saying it. I mean, I don't think Jose Ramirez, that's not to say he's terrible. I mean, I think he's definitely in the top three at 140 i think he's reasonably ranked number two at 140 and i don't think that's wrong but you know he's just he's not the type of guy who is really dominant you know we've we've talked about that with sean porter with danny garcia sometimes when he was younger coming up i didn't think he'd even get to this level but he's proved to be the type of guy who can hang at the world level but isn't going to dominate at the world level and like we said about the maurice hooker fight there was a lot of contact in that fight, and that was really the outcome was really more of an issue of Jose Ramirez just having a much better chin than Maurice Sucker. But you know, just a note about that. I mean, Jose Ramirez got hit a lot in this fight. Victor Postal is not a huge knockout puncher, but you know, he landed some serious punches in this fight. There was an accumulation. I mean, <laughs> Jose Ramirez is starting to look like the way that you know you think of fighters like Jared Hurd or Adam Kanaki, who are fighters in the last few years who are used to taking a lot of punches would wear down their opponents, would take a lot of punches in order to wear down their opponents, and eventually caught up with them. You know, uh, Jared Hurd doesn't seem to have the chin he used to, and Adam Kanaki got knocked out uh, earlier this year, right before the quarantine. So I'm not saying that uh, that'll... (laughs) It's maybe not the best comparison to Jose Ramirez, but it's like, he's a guy who gets hit a lot. He's got a few years left in his career. He's roughly in his physical prime now, but with the amount of accumulation he's taking, I don't think that's a good sign i'll just say to speak to your point about expectations because i think this is kind of what you're looking for but there were a lot of people this week who seem to have in mind and there's a specific person on twitter i'm not going to name uh but they seem to have in mind the notion that jose ramirez is a superstar if people don't consider him a superstar already he's a future superstar and therefore if you work backwards from that a future superstar would knock out victor postal and anyone i saw saying that you know, this was going to be a knockout victory didn't make sense based on Victor, you know, unless something had happened since the last time we saw him fight, that never made sense. I I just, on paper, 
this fight was going to look like this. Again, this was not a fight match made by Top Rank as, as a showcase fight. This is a fight that was made by because it was a w, WBC mandatory and Postal's uh, a PBC fighter. So, you know, this was not not this was never going to be a blowout. So I'm going to throw the question back to you. I, I've been talking enough. I mean, what what were your expect? I mean, we talked about it last week, but what were your expectations and were they, you know, met positive or negatively by either guy? Yeah. This, so, look. For me, I don't think that this was a bad Ramirez performance. I think, and I'll agree with you, although you have the, I'll give you the kudos here because you did have a really good and accurate read on the fight. But Jose Ramirez, and I don't know, anybody who's followed me for a while knows that I have followed Jose Ramirez very closely for years and years. I remember writing about him uh, when he turned pro and when he was with Freddie Roach and, um, you know, just really talking about him as a professional and I, and I remember specifically, you know, Top Rank had signed three guys. Uh, well, they signed a lot of guys, but there were three that stood out amongst the group that they had signed. Felix Verdejo, Oscar Valdez, and Jose Ramirez. And Jose Ramirez at the time was progressing at the slowest rate. However, he did look like he was going to progress well into a good pro if, if the defense could work itself out. And what, we, what I'm seeing thus far and what I think is evident to anybody who, who watches the guy, it's really not developing. And is that a bad thing? No, because I think Ramirez does a pretty good job at working around his limitations. What we saw here, though, was I think a very good Victor Postal performance. Yes, he didn't win the fight, but I'm saying it's good based off of what I expected going in. Now, I did not think Victor Pulso was going to be very competitive in this fight. And I'll tell you why. Victor Pulso, and it was really clear in this fight, he's just very, like, meek in the ring. I don't know how else to describe it. I guess I could say, <laughs> you know, like, the way Peter Quillen looked in his fight with Alfredo Angulo, even though Peter Quillen was getting the better of some of the rounds, every time Quillen gets hit, he looks like he doesn't like it. He looks like he doesn't want to be there. And there are times when he gets hit, and I don't know if he's hurt or not, but the way he staggers back certainly convinces me or at least gives me the impression that he is bothered by those punches. So whether those punches are hurting him or not, they do register out of proportion. And I feel like Victor Pulsel is one of those guys where his body language, um, it, 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 it works against him, even if he's totally fine in fights. And granted, there was only one moment in this fight where he actually looked like he was hurt. Um, but it certainly looked like every time he was on, he he had his back against the ropes, he was panicking. But with all that said, this was a great performance from him. And Freddie Roach, I'll give credit to Freddie. Freddie's gotten you know clowned on this podcast several times in the past. We have definitely made a lot of fun of Freddie Roach and his inability to craft good game plans and adjust on the fly. You know, plan A, most of the time, usually when it doesn't work, it, it that, that fighter who's trained by Freddie Roach, they wind up going into, you know, or they wind up just getting beat up because there's no plan B. And here plan A worked. The plan for Victor Pulso, which they outlined, was straight punches, one, two, body work, and that's it. And you know what? That that was all it needed. Vic, Jose Ramirez has a serious limitation when it comes to eating jabs and the straight right hands. I mean, Postal caught him a lot of times. And granted, I do want to point this out. If Postal had legit power, Jose Ramirez wouldn't have been coming forward the way he was. But 
in this fight, I don't think Victor Pulso ever truly got Ramirez's respect because Ramirez never slowed down throughout the, the course of the fight. Uh, and if he was landing with real power, I think he might have stopped him or at least dropped him. I mean, Mario Barrios landing those right hands that Polsto landed probably hurts Ramirez. So, um, you know, I thought Victor Polsto turned in a really good performance here. I don't know if I, I gave him the fight. I didn't score it. But if I was, I don't know how it would have felt, you know. I feel like the the strongest voices that were talking about Victor Polsto winning that fight tend to, you know have a little bit of a PBC bias towards them. And those people who thought that Ramirez clearly won the fight, I think there was a little bit of a top rank bias. The truth for me, you know, weighing all the factors, it was somewhere in the middle. I don't know. I think maybe a draw was the right card. I thought Polsto did earn a couple of the early rounds that Andre Ward didn't give him. And I thought maybe Andre Ward was now, trying to was... overcompensate Jesus. late down the line. Or sorry, late down the fight. So I... It, that's another reason why I think we we have such a, a, a hard time, or at least I had such a hard time really getting a good read on this fight was because of the disagreement between Tim Bradley and Andre Ward. But that's good because I thought that um, this was of the perfect fight for a disagreement, like a, like a real fundamental disagreement over what you look at in a fight. So I don't know, you look at, um, or did you have any problem with the scoring? Um, yeah, I, I have a quick comment on the scoring. I mean, so you don't have like an actual scorecard to... No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought um, Postal by one round was good for me from home. I definitely don't have... Uh, you know, a majority decision feels right because it sort of acknowledges how close it was on the official record. Steve Weisfeld had it pretty wide, and I usually consider him like the gold standard, so... The, the read that I get, and I think what maybe partly explains Ward's sort of seemingly crazy scorecard at times, is that uh, probably the difference in the punching power was more apparent in person. And, yeah. you, you know, you, you know, as like, you know, having judged a lot of fights in person as well, how big of a difference that makes. So yep. um, I, I don't I don't think it was crazy. I mean, nothing, you know. I think majority decision feels fine. I mean, it's like the Jose Cebeda fight. That that one I also scored for Cebeda, but it's it's like, yeah, it's, okay. It's it was a close fight, and it's on the record as being a majority decision. It feels like you know, it's, it's the right way of saying it. I mean, it never feels great when like you know those decisions always go to the A side. It seems, but I I don't know. I, I mean, it's it, it it's there's no no issue where it seemed like so dominant i feel like postal was robbed or anything i mean to to go along with what you were saying i mean he looked like he didn't have his weight under him for a lot of the fight you know to to go along with what you're saying and usually that means fighters aren't able to generate powers power on their shots so even if he was landing pretty cleanly shots weren't necessarily powerful and you know you sort of put all those pieces together the steve weissfeld scorecard then the notion that maybe it seemed different in person it's like Okay, that that that's there. There probably was an element that you could get in person that we didn't get over the over the airwaves. So that that's kind of my my opinion on that. Yeah, I didn't really have too big of an issue with the scorecards. Um, I do think that they're a little wide for Ramirez, just slightly. But I'm not going to sit here and like mount some argument as to why they shouldn't have been that way. Uh, do have you watched this fight? Um, do you think like your opinion is changing? on the potential matchup between Jose Ramirez and Josh Taylor? Or are you sticking to your guns there? 
I mean, that's I have yeah a few thoughts on that. I mean, they talked about that a lot this week, and a lot of the media talked about that. And I, I listened to the the post fight like interview call, and it, it, like everyone seems to take for granted that that fight's just going to happen. And I I don't really get that. I mean, I don't. I mean, it's a top rank situation is so weird. Like we've talked about that in the last few weeks. Like, what's the deal with the PBC and like who's fighting on pay per view, who isn't. Who's kind of outgrown the non-pay-per-view fights in terms of like the Charlo brothers, and now they're putting them on like a doubleheader pay-per-view. And like Ramirez post, like Ramirez Taylor, like I don't really see as generating that much money. Taylor, for whatever fan base he has, is not in the United States. Ramirez can sell a lot of eight-dollar tickets in Fresno, but that's not like that doesn't generate any big money nationally. Like if they did. Um, Taylor versus Ramirez in Las Vegas, like next March, say, let's just, you know, sort of assume slash hope COVID's resolved and it could be in front of a crowd. It's like, how big of an event is that? I don't really see that as being a big event. But at the same time, like neither guy really has a huge pathway to becoming huge. I mean, it's not like the PBC at welterweight where like you have a lot of good opponents and, you know, good exposure where these guys can fight on Fox and really get built up. Like, I, I don't really see a pathway for either guy to really grow that much. So it's it's kind of a weird situation. It's like, what's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Like, if they fight each other, it's not that big of a fight. I don't really see how either guy gets that much bigger. You know, if this is what it looks like when Jose Ramirez fights against Jose Zapata and against Victor Postal, it's like, how do you really grow him if every fight it looks like, you know, you're debating whether or not it was a robbery during the, the post fight, right? So, or at least if you're a casual fan, I don't know about us. We ain't arguing that, but I get what you're saying. Well, here. but again, it was like all of the discussion the on Twitter was about the scoring. It wasn't about how he looks like a pound for pound fighter. It was, you know, like he, he just he can't really distinguish himself. Like we've talked about that before. Like fighters like Caleb Plant who can look flashy enough, they can fight a lower level opponent and still convince you that they're a good fighter. Like Jose Ramirez, if every fight is going to be a workhorse performance where he gets hit a lot, that he, you know, he has a hard time really distinguishing himself. You know, um, I mean, the 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 Maurice Hooker fight really is like an outlier in the, like the last three years of his career. So, as far as like, how does this make look the Josh Taylor fight look? I mean, I think a lot of people would say, okay, Ramirez went down a notch. I, I'm sort of saying that's irrelevant, but to that point. Uh, Josh Taylor also had a competitive fight with Postal. So to me, it's not really like... I believe Josh Taylor was hurt in that fight. Yeah, it doesn't really move the needle that much. Um, so anyway, your, your thoughts? Yeah, I think for that fight, neither guy has done anything to change my mind on how it plays out. I think there that's just going to be a, a style matchup that is going to work well for Josh Taylor. Uh, you know... I could be talked into believing that Jose Ramirez is gas tank and his, um, you know, his explosiveness, which is pretty good. Like I do like the explosiveness of Jose Ramirez. The only problem is he needs guys to stand there so he can do that. And Victor Postal wasn't willing. And I believe Josh Taylor is going to be smart enough to not uh, just stand there <clears throat> and let Jose Ramirez charge at him. In which case we're going to have some major issues if you're Jose Ramirez's camp on getting past him. So I, you know, I I am favoring Josh Taylor in that fight. Nothing changed here, um, and I I don't know that there's anything that Ramirez could do that's going to change my mind. I feel like 
Jose Ramirez as a fighter is a, like cooked. He's a done deal. We know what we're getting with him. I'm, and I'm not saying he's bad, by the way. I just mean like th- he's developed enough. This is the fighter he is, and he may improve slightly on what he does and, and, and isn't able to do. But by and large, this is Jose Ramirez's package, and we're not going to really get too much different out of him the rest of his career. Um, so, yeah, what do you think is next for Victor Postal? Um, I think he turned in a good enough performance here that I want to see him again. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the the bar of success or failure in this fight is different for both guys. You know, like top rank and a lot of guys who support top rank. And, you know, I was saying before, like the people who came into the fight thinking that Ramirez was going to blow away Postal clearly are disappointed, I guess. I mean, I think Bradley had predicted a knockout win for Ramirez, which, you know, so baffling to me. (laughs) That that must have been why Bradley was so disappointed. Yeah, I mean, as far as Right, exactly. But as far as Postal, it's like, okay, people came in with no expectations. He's kind of been out fighting in the middle of nowhere. So now he get. I mean, it's it's kind of ironic, right? Because it's like this was also on ESPN Plus. So I, I, I think that kind of mitigates the result on both sides. It's like Postal doesn't really get that much. Of it. But it's like he's coming from such a low point in his career um, I think this really valid, like he, he instantly becomes a valid B side for anyone on the PBC side, right. For like a Fox main event or something like that, or a pay-per-view undercard fight. I, I don't think he has that much a side value, but like, let's say, uh, Regis Progre is fighting in oddly a 10 rounder on the, the tank Santa Cruz undercard. So he's fighting a 10 rounder at 140 pounds. He hasn't moved up to 147, although it sort of seems likely he will do that. I think that's an extremely natural fight. I think Progray versus Victor Postal, like I would totally watch as like a, a bigger fight on like Showtime or Fox. And uh, I, I think I would pick uh, po- Progray to win that fight by knockout. But, you know, it's a good matchup for him because you have this measuring stick where Postal already gave Taylor and Ramirez tough fights. And if Progray is iced out from those two fights, that's a really good measuring stick. You know, they can promote it as a major fight going in instead of a fight that in this case, Ramirez was supposed to win by knockout apparently, which, you know, I still shake my head out, but so many people were saying that. So I, I, I like how that stacks up for progress specifically. That's sort of the, the only thing I can, I, I'm having a hard time getting that out of my mind because it just seems to make so much sense. Um, what do you think? I think progress, the natural opponent, but I actually think the better opponent is Mario Barrios. Um, if you're, if you're the person like handling Postal's career, he's like 37 years old. He's just coming off of two fights against two of the four title holders at 140 pounds. And he turned in a great account of himself in both of those fights. Came up short, but it was a great account of himself. And so my thinking is we're not going to get back into the ring and we're not trying to rebuild. We're going to go straight for it. And Mario Barrios has a title at 140, which could possibly a win over Barrios gets Polsto back into the mix for titles at 140. And so I'm going to go that route. I think that's uh, because also that's an uh, a main event. I think that would, could main event Fox. It could main event Showtime. Uh, it could be the co-main as a pay-per-view. I think it's also like, you know, predictable. This is what everybody does. This is how matchmaking is. You take a guy who just 
he fought someone close, so therefore you use him to elevate your guy because like, oh, my guy can beat him easier than the champion. So therefore my guy is better than the champion. It's like we see this over and over again in boxing. So it makes sense that they would do this. So I like Barrios, but like there are a lot of good matchups that they could have for Pulso. I mean, Pulso versus Batir Akhmedov, who is the guy who almost beat Mario Barrios. I think that is like as a co-main on a card would potentially be fireworks. Um, I, I like the options for Pulso now. There are so many guys at 140 that if you put them in there with, you can say, hey, that's an interesting fight. Um, and obviously, since he's a PBC fighter, we're talking Progre. We are talking uh, Barrios. I don't know about Akhmedov, if he's PBC or not, but I know that he's going to be fighting again on a PBC card. So I don't know. Take that for what you, however you want it. But um, yeah, I, I like Postal. I did not think he had that much of a shot here, but I so I can say I was pretty impressed with the performance he turned in because it was a smart one. I do want to say uh, about this card, um, I have this written lower, but I'm going to talk about it now. I thought the commentary during the main event was Oh, can I, excellent. let me, let me go. Well, okay, finish that, but I have a response to it. I, I thought the uh, commentary during uh, Postal and Ramirez was just, it was the best commentary I've heard on Top Rank in a really long time. That's not sarcasm? Or... <clears throat> no, I thought it was really good. But here's the thing. What people need to understand is both Bradley and Andre Ward, they had a fundamental disagreement on what they saw happening. And the, 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 the best part about it was that they neither was wrong. But that's boxing, and that's why boxing is so hard. You have two guys who are very good. They were both great pros, probably both going to the Hall of Fame. Certainly Andre Ward is. And they didn't agree on what they were seeing. And, you know, you could see, like, I could I could see, like, fans being split 50-50 between who they thought was right. Andre was towing the company line, it felt like. But he was also, he was more swayed by the power and the... Uh, and like the aggression of Jose Ramirez, which by the way, was really strange given the, the style that he fought with as a professional. Timothy Bradley, on the other hand, loved the boxing, the pure boxing that Polstol was doing. I mean, Polstol was landing clean jabs in those one-twos. It was like, you know, if it was an amateur fight, Polstol would have easily won this fight. And Joe Testator for once just kind of shut up and let these guys work. He let these guys disagree. He let these guys, um, you know, explain why they felt the way they felt about the fight. And there was a bit of tension between Bradley and Ward because they were taking it personal that they had a disagreement over how the fight was playing out. That made for good viewing because it prepared you to, um, it prepared you for a decision that was disputed. And I think if they were both on Ramirez's side or both on Postal's side, however you want to put it, um, I, I think we would have gotten a lot more complaints afterward from fans about this fight being a robbery, which I don't think that there was a big uh, a big voice out there that said this was a robbery of a fight. I think this is what you need. You need to hear both sides of close fights so that when there are decisions like this one, you can see, oh, yes, the draw makes sense, but you could also make sense of the wide card. And like for once, Joe Tessitore just shut up and let these guys talk which was completely, which, this was the antithesis of the Fox coverage where Lennox and Joe kept wanting to talk about, you know, the X's and O's and what they were seeing in the ring. And Brian Kenny for, I don't know why, 
was trying to do a podcast where he was talking about boxing news and stories and all this stuff. And I was like, bro, no one cares. We are watching a fight. Uh, so I don't know. Um, I don't know if you agree with that, but I thought the commentary was really good during the main event. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I totally that's totally valid point, but I, I, I really just can't separate myself from my experience of actually watching it in which uh, Andre Ward seemed to be giving commentary from another planet. And, <laughs> the, you know, the audio quality to, was really bad. I was like, wow. Oh, I don't even mean that. I just mean in terms of his observations. I mean, you know, it, it was sort of just really seemed to be sort of a classic example of, you know, just towing the company line. Like we've seen this before with other like PBC top rank crossovers. Like when Luke uh, fought on one of their undercards, they spent the whole fight talking about Tyson Fury. And then Timothy Bradley would appear, would occasionally jump in to just sort of acknowledge that he wasn't paying attention to what was happening you know it was you just you see some weirdness like that like it really just felt like they they, they weren't going to give postal props and you know i get what you're saying about bradley but it was like to me bradley when he was giving observations were just reasonable and ward frequently like while postal would land a combination would be talking about how ramirez was exceeding his expectations i mean that happened so many times and, uh, you know, regarding Tessitore being quiet, I mean, I, I feel like um, doing a play-by-play was not going to be helpful to Ramirez for all of the clean shots Postal was landing. So I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's unfair to them, and it probably is. I mean, if I have the reputation of being the PBC show on the podcast, but it, it seemed like the, the things they were saying in terms of what Ward was saying was frequently sort of crazy and giving way too much credit to Ramirez and things that they weren't saying were, you know, in terms of doing like a clean round by round, which is normally what, you know, the Joe Tessitore in this position would do, you know, was just sort of leaving unsaid a lot of the good work that was happening. So, well, um, I think Andre, you know, his yeah, observations on. of what was happening were accurate. He was right on about what Ramirez was doing in the fight. <clears throat> Where he messed up, though, is that he completely would disregard um, what Postal was doing, which is where Bradley came in. But Andre wasn't wrong about what he was talking about, what Ramirez was doing. That was clear. He clearly was the stronger guy in the in the ring. He was clearly the aggressor. The only problem was he was also getting jabbed. Uh, I mean, Postal couldn't miss a jab at times. And, you know, just the fact that he disregarded that was, yeah, I thought that was a bit egregious and possibly because he was towing the company line. But Bradley did a good job of just saying, I'm not going to I'm not going to subscribe to that, which which is funny because Bradley's usually the guy who we've traditionally said he is like just over the top, like Michael Cole out here. And but he just stuck to his guns and he's like, I don't feel that that is the way this is going down. So that's why I liked it. Um, Credit to Bradley in that sense, yeah. But, I mean, you know, it was like when at one point Ward, I think, said he had like five of the first six rounds for Vermeer. You know, it's like, yeah, Bradley called that out because it's completely crazy. Yeah, you know, that was – like, well, it was funny because Bradley first came out and said like, you know, uh, you know, Postal's winning these rounds early. And then they cut to Andre or, well, I don't know if cut. But then Andre pops in and is like – so I have uh, five of the first six rounds going to uh, Ramirez. and But you could tell when he said it, he was taking Bradley's assessment of the fight so far personal. And uh, at, at that point, I was like, oh, we're going to have a good broadcast on our hands here. Either either we're going to see Tim Bradley or 
Andre Ward cave to the other and it's going to be embarrassing or they're going to stick to their guns and they're going to disagree on this fight. And luckily for, at least for me, it doesn't look like you enjoyed it. Um, they stuck to their guns and we got a well-rounded, uh, I don't know, commentary on this fight. Well, I think we've, uh, I think I'm mostly done with this fight. I, I have one tiny note, but do you have any other thoughts? No, on, what's, your, uh, what's your note? Before? Yeah, tiny note when you were mentioning Mario Barrios. I think we're thinking the same thing in terms of matching Postal going forward, which is that someone who can punch a little bit harder than Jose Ramirez can probably knock out Victor Postal. And and I, I think I view that as being um, uh, Regis Progre, and I think you're viewing that as um, Mario Barrios. See, but I, I, I think Progre could fall into the trap of getting the shit jobbed out of him. I don't. I I am well, not very high on That's why to me there's a, there's enough intrigue in that fight, which makes it interesting. Because I think on paper you'd have to say Postal could beat either of them. So that's why I think that makes that a good you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think we can move on. That's, that's a pretty tangential point. Uh, okay, so nothing really stood out to me on the top rank undercard. Elvis Rodriguez got a really cool knockout, but the problem was his opponent was like completely overmatched. Um, yeah, he hasn't reached the stage of his career where it's really, you know, it's the it's the phase of the career where a prospect touches the opponent on the chin and they just, you know, I yeah, think I mean, he's a that prospect. guy they're, was they're like, like a prospect. 300 on box rec. It's an opponent who hasn't done anything one rounds against anyone reasonably. You know, it's like, OK, yeah. Yeah, as, so, as we've talked about with top rank matchmaking, the point of that fight was to get a knockout. It wasn't to test him, you know. So, but here's the problem, okay? And I don't have any problem with Elvis Rodriguez. He's developing. He's green. We don't know anything about him. We think he can punch. I don't know. He's a Freddie Roach fighter. But here's the thing. When you put a guy like this in the position where he's fighting uh, on the card and he's uh, kind of high up on the card, people get the wrong idea about him. He's developing the expectations of, say, someone like Angelo Leo, who is like, he may have ended a card already, but nobody had ever heard of him. But now you have the expectations that this guy belongs amongst the top guys in the division. Elvis Rodriguez is going to develop that very soon because they're putting him in this position. And this is no different from, I think, Vito Melnecki and Joey Spencer, who are popping up on the, the, I don't know, the main event portion of the card. And it's building expectations that maybe these guys don't need quite yet. Because Elvis Rodriguez, yeah, cool knockout, still very green. We don't know what happens when somebody who can actually box gets in there in the ring with him. So, yeah, um, nothing stood out on the card, though. I mean, both of these undercards were just kind of like, eh. There was some okay stuff. There's a slightly entertaining stuff. But for the most part, it was all fairly forgettable, uh, especially when you factor in. This is a combined like eight hours of boxing just on these two cards. So anyway, Arizona Lara, he won a decision over Greg Vendetti. So the fight goes 12 rounds. What do you think that says about Arizona Lara that he could not stop Greg Vendetti? Couldn't be bothered to stop him. I don't know. I, I what, what, are, what, are, what, are, what are your thoughts? I have a hard time leading off on this. Well, I mean, you know what it says about Lara is that Lara, well, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, this is a take I gave on the podcast in like 2016, maybe. And it was about uh, Shinsuke Yamanaka, who, if you don't know who that is, Bantamweight fighter, very talented Bantamweight fighter. Um, but Yamanaka had a very strange style and he, he would basically lose the first five or six rounds, make an adjustment and then knock his opponent out. And he was very good for that. 
great left hand, knocked a lot of guys out, okay? But Yamanaka, like, I had seen it coming. Like, he was still, like, beating guys up. But it just didn't look right to me anymore. And I was like, this guy's right for the picking now. Like, I'm seeing the signs. He, he, it's going to happen soon. And it doesn't even matter who he's fighting. At some point, he's going to get demolished. And we saw, like, you know, he had this one performance. It was like, okay. And then he goes off and he knocks this guy out. So everyone thinks, all right, all right. You know, Yamanaka's, he's, he's fine. And then he fights Luis Neri and Luis Neri just demolished him. And, uh... Arizona Lara seems like that to me. Like, it's not a matter of if he's going to get beat. It's when. He is very much right for the picking now. Um, and, and you could counter me and say, well, you know, Lara was fighting Vendetti. Who'd ever heard of Vendetti? Maybe he wasn't really truly up for this fight. I don't know. Arizona Lara doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that's not the consummate professional who's always showing up in shape and there to, you know truly be 100% locked in game uh, on fight night and what I saw from Lara was like he just wasn't that sharp now he's still extraordinarily talented let's not get that mistaken here extraordinarily talented he's still gonna beat a lot of guys but at some point he's gonna get beat and it just looks like the time is is coming whether that be Jamel Charlo or Jason Rosario whoever wins that fight if they fight Lara or it might even be somebody who's like not that high level you know Lara's does not have his legs anymore. Like he he wasn't moving very well for the first six rounds, but then after the sixth round, he did not move much at all anymore. And that speaks to the fact that he's older. It's like 37 years old. The legs ain't what they used to be. So it does say something about Laura. I mean, he's still a good fighter. Like, don't get me wrong here, but the we're seeing that the miles on the odometer are getting up there and it's a matter of time before he gets probably stopped by somebody um yeah i agree with you i mean sort of uh the way i'd frame it is like where does he go from here what does the next year look like for arislandi lara the pbc is trying to do a lot of big fights at 154 jermel is fighting on pay-per-view if all goes to plan he's going to win that fight impressively and continue to fight on pay-per-view either in you know double header pay-per-views possibly his own headline depending on how that event does you know is is Lara based on this performance like a b-side to that t- level of fight I don't know I don't think so I think he he's you know he's one rung down in terms of the his sort of eliminator status you know I mean he has that loss to Jared Hurd and what was a war I think it was the the it was either Ring Magazine or the Boxing Writers Association Fight of the Year. Had another very good competitive fight with Brian Castano. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think he could really bring that type of prominence to be a B-side of a, a pay-per-view with, uh, like, Jermel, unless it's, you know, another type of doubleheader or something else. I, I, I feel like he's one rung down. Like, I, I feel, he's almost fought everyone in the division, but I think we could see him against J-Rock. Uh, we see him against Lubin. I think a lot of people have been saying that for a while, that, you know, the fight that Lubin could do to get himself into uh, contender status is to fight Lara, and Lara's old enough that it would make sense. I don't know. Do you, do you have an obvious next step? Um, well, I do want to say uh, it's very similar to Jose Ramirez, where they both got wins, but you can't really build off of this. Like, these wins don't make anybody excited. And... 
if you're trying to make the next step in your career, specific, more specifically for Jose Ramirez, because he's younger and there's still a lot of money to be made for this guy and, and big fights that potentially he could be in, um, this isn't going to help. For Lara, I think he's still got the reputation that he had a long time ago and he's still got a shake, but this fight didn't help. And so, yeah, I don't know that you could sell him as like that top, top level matchup. Now, could he be in a fight against Lubin, like in headline? Yeah, I think that'd be great. I don't know that that's, I, if I'm Lara, I don't know if I want that fight. If I'm Lara, truthfully, or truthfully, I would want uh, a rematch with Jarrett Hurd. Because I think the only reason why Arizona Lara lost that fight is because he made a, an egregious error in how he wanted to fight Hurd. He didn't make things easy on himself in that fight. And I think if you look at Jared Hurd, first of all, I don't, you know, I don't think Jared Hurd is very good. And I don't think that's like a controversial take here. But like Jared Hurd, as we know, is like, okay, I'm a big guy and I absorb a lot of punches and then I land punches late in the fight and I can maybe stop a guy. And we saw with J-Rock, if you bully um, Hurd on the inside, you know, he doesn't really have that much of an answer for it. And I think if Lara could actually box and put away rounds early before maybe having to step inside, I think Lara could easily get that win and, you know, elevate himself. And should he beat Hurd, I do think that Hurd has enough of a name that that would elevate Lara into that spot where he gets one more big fight in his career. Um, you know, I, I like the Lubin fight, though, because, you know, Lubin's a young guy and we've been following Lubin for a long time and he got his little train got derailed when he fought Jermel Charlo and I feel like it's time for Lubin to get back to the top and and this will be a good fight to see if Lubin's for real uh do you have any other interesting opponents that maybe you'd want to see Lara fight yeah interested to think about Fundora 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 that looked really good in his last fight. That and, is and interesting. And you think that that might be the type of... His his team has been pretty aggressive with matchmaking, you know, fighting Gallimore the last fight timeout. I mean, obviously, there's a world of separation between Gallimore and Lara, but, you know, Lara's faded enough. It's the type of matchup where you might see um, Fundora push him over the edge, you know. That is I, an I, I never matchup. thought that a year ago, but I think that's... Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, one thing I can see that would be a problem for Lara in that fight is Lara doesn't usually have fights where he's not the longer guy. And Fundora, while being an inside fighter, uh, he'll be longer than Lara. And Fundora should be able to wing shots at Lara at any range. That's a real interesting matchup there. I, I think that that could be one of those fights where Lara gets stopped and everyone didn't think it, but like, in hindsight, it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, Imagine I mean, it, saying that yeah. a year ago, Fundora can probably stop Arizona De Lara. You'd be like, "Are you smoking crack?" Well, you know, he's Lara's thirty-seven. You know, I mean, it's, hey, it's a, there is though, an, an inevitability to it. You know, uh, that you know the 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 clock runs out eventually. But Rigondeaux's like um, fifty-six years old, and that dude still looks like you know a million bucks. Lara looked a little soft in this fight. I'm just going to throw that out there. Well, yeah, it's the whole thing. The Cubans have so many miles are put on the odometer in the amateur system. You know, it's kind of like what we've seen with Lomachenko as well, where it's, it's you know, Rigondeaux even if had the, Rick Glazer rolling back the miles on his. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, 
Yeah, I mean, even besides, you know, people who joke about, like, the age stuff with Cubans, I mean, you know, I've always felt that that's a little silly, but, um, you know, just the amount of amateur activity, you know, and then the training for amateur fights, you know, these guys, again, just have a lot of miles on the odometer, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I sort of uh, didn't didn't give the Glazer joke enough room, yeah, I mean, his... Uh, <laughs> extracurricular activities before boxing yeah um thank you for explaining it a little bit to those who but, may not know yeah I, I i i'm sorry i sort of did, didn't let that land in the moment but um yeah i don't know any any other thoughts on this fight or anything else i mean i mean i think let me say one more thing it's just like i've talked before about the matchmaking and i said against like sebastian formella against uh, porter I, I didn't really see that as an issue that he didn't get a stoppage because on paper to me it didn't look like that type of matchup this this looked like on paper you know when you're like you know who the hell is greg vendetti like this was an opponent who was supposed to get stopped and instead laura did not look like a million bucks you know this this was a guy on paper who he should have been able to stop and didn't and um you know, unfortunately, it just, you know, again, it, it, it just looks like it, getting close to the end of the road for, for, for Lara here, which is unfortunate for him. And I think, like, Sean Porter has some defense. I mean, Sean Porter's never been a big puncher. and uh, But Lara is the kind of guy that we know that left hand that he's got is lethal. And he really never found a home for it. I mean, there were moments in this fight where Lara did some amazing things. But it wasn't consistent. He wasn't able to truly batter Vendetti. And, like, give credit to Vendetti, too. I think he's a little tricky fighter. He's small. He's uh, really muscular. Um, he's not as bad as I thought he was going to be, really. And I actually think Vendetti could have some pretty interesting fights at 154. Now, not at the top level, okay? Be Get real here, okay? Vendetti looks like the kind of guy, like, you know what? Put him in there with Cornflake. That'd probably be a good fight. Put him in there with... Uh, with Brian Mendoza, who beat Cornflake, that'd probably be an interesting fight. Obviously, Vendetti should not fight these top guys. Like, you know, Tony Harrison probably toys with them. Those guys have no issue with him. But you know what? I'm all for, like, the, these, like, mid-level fights that are feature two guys that are good enough that will give some entertainment. And I think Vendetti versus, like, uh, <clears throat> who did I just say? Vendetti versus Cornflake would be a great fight. Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, you now have a guy who went the dis, you know, went the distance with Arizlandi Lara, so it becomes a challenge for any of these up and coming guys to get a knockout, right? So, you know, he's got some value there. I've been talking, you know, to people. Well, at least one person in particular. We were talking this weekend, and um, you know, he just kept saying like, you know, that guy sucks. This guy sucks. This guy sucks. And I was like, okay. In the context of, like, we are talking Errol Spence, Tyson Fury, Canelo, yes, this guy does suck, okay, compared to those guys. But for me, I've been thinking that i got to recalibrate what I think is good in boxing because we see too many fights on TV now, and if I stick to only the guys that could headline a Fox card are good... That means a lot of guys are just not going to be good fighters. And you know the reality is that's going to make me hate a lot of the boxing that I watch. And the reality is a guy like Greg Vendetti, he is pretty good. No, actually, I would say he's good. Like, good. Like, the way a Honda Civic is a, is a good car. But, like, it's not top of the line. Like, I'm not going to make that mistake. But, you know, if I don't adjust my level... Like, I'm just going to be a bitter boxing fan. Like, obviously, we know there's a level of elite fighters. 
and those guys are pay-per-view guys, and those guys, you know, Lomachenko, these are the elite guys, But and there's not a lot like them. They're the very good guys, the guys who like, like Ugas, a very good fighter. These guys can also headline cards. There are the pretty good guys that can headline a, an FS1, maybe. And then there are good guys, like guys that if you saw them on the undercard, yeah, they're never going to be in the headline, but are usually not going to be in the headline. You know, Vendetti got a shot here, but these guys are good. And if they're on the undercard, you're like, okay, that's cool. I, you know, I'll check this guy out. Jonathan Aquendo, that's a good fighter. I want to see him fight. You know, I, I don't think that I'm not I'm not in love with the matchup between Aquendo and Herring. But Aquendo's good enough. Like, I, you know, I, I'll check him out. You know, it's just me recalibrating based off of the fact that there's so much boxing. And not only is there so much boxing, but you're seeing so much more of the card that I got to recalibrate. I got to figure out that, or not that I got to figure out, but, you know, I think I got to assess these guys a little differently to be fair and also to make it more interesting because if I just say, no, 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 that if all the guys that I thought in the past weren't very good, um, I would not watch certain cards and that's not what's happening. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, noted. I mean, Vendetti's better than the guy Elvis Rodriguez knocked out. But that guy would qualify as not very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I, I mean, that, like, that's why, I mean, people clown me for always talking about the box rec rankings, but it's useful for getting some sort of, you know, relatively objective way of, of evaluating fighters. It's No one's saying it's an exact science, but it's relatively useful to say that Vendetti, who box rec has after that loss at 73 in the division, you know, comparing that to a guy who, again, talking about some of these top rec components who are outside of the top 200, top 300, you know, top 100, whatever, you know, it's, it's like, it, it gives you a grasp of what that means. And I think, you know, you saw from Vendetti, he wasn't a guy who was going to come in and just fall over. It's not like his chin was so bad. Again, he was just going to get knocked out early. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, 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 that, that's as much as I have to say about that. How this came up is that, you know, Formella, Sebastian Formella, I don't think is a very good fighter, but he's good. He's like, he's like, all right. He's like maybe a little bit better than all right. He's a good fighter. Like I can imagine, I can see him beating quite a few people at welterweight. Now, is he great? Not even close. Okay. But he's a good fighter. But in the past, I probably would have just said, no, nah, so Formella, he's trash, but that's not really the case. You know, he's a good fighter. Um, some of the guys out there, yeah, there are guys who aren't very good in, like, the prospect-level opponents, sure. But, you know, just some recalibration because, look, the reality is Formella is a headliner um, in Germany. He's a European level, so he got in position to be ranked in the WBC rankings enough to be in a part of an eliminator. So he must be—he's not completely incompetent in there. So— just kind of like, and I've talked about this in the past too, like creating the, the tiers, the pyramid of boxing and just like, you know, how low do you have to go before you're like at really bad or trash or something? And like, there's a lot of guys that are far above that. And it's just really just um, giving them some more respect, but also it just helps me watching these to know that I'm not wasting my time. That's really what this comes down to. Anyway, let's move on. Alfredo Angulo, he lost a decision to Vladimir Hernandez. Vladimir Hernandez, he was a late replacement and uh, I saw someone saying this, and I and I agreed with it. It was a worse matchup for Angulo than Truax because you got to remember Truax was coming off of an Achilles tear. He lost a majority decision, to, or not lost. He won, or I don't even remember if it was a he won or it was a draw against some guy in his comeback fight. Who the guy was, you know, a very low level opponent that 
Truax was just supposed to get back to normal and he wound up looking um, very much like a shell of himself in that fight. So in comes Vladimir Hernandez and he beats Alfredo Angulo. So um, this was a pretty violent fight. It wasn't necessarily a good fight. I thought there was a lot of action, but it wasn't great action. So with this loss, this would be, I think, his eighth loss. You think this is the end for Alfredo Angulo? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, Angulo is a guy who just like, well, just to talk about the fight itself a little bit. I mean, I this is not my type of fight at all. I mean, I, I don't need to see an, an, a quote all action fight. And by that, it means like an old fighter just taking a ton of punishment because they can't get out of the way of punches anymore. You know, in the case of Angulo, was never good at getting out of the way of punches. Um, you know, it was definitely a high contact fight, but you know, not not really my thing. I mean, Angulo was already, it seemed, brought in to lose against Peter Quillen. I mean, his best division was 154. Now he's at 168. He's a massive you know, underdog. He, yeah, I mean, he got the surprise win against Quillen. This fight with those originally proposed against Trax, it seemed like kind of the idea with that fight was sort of like I was saying with, with Lara, but, you know, even more so in this fight. It's like... The as it stands, neither fighter would really be a valid opponent for David Benavidez or uh, Caleb Plant. But if you know you have an eliminator where you have you know these two guys face each other, okay, whoever comes out of that then suddenly has a good win on their record against you know the other opponent, uh, the other fighter, and then that would make them you know more appropriate opponent for for Caleb Plant or, or um, David Benavidez. You know, instead. Uh, Truex has to drop out. Angulo loses. It's kind of a wash. I mean, I don't. I don't think anyone really cares that much about Vladimir Hernandez coming off of this. Or, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, coming off of this this fight. So, you know, it, it was already a little bit cynical. I mean, Tru, Truex and Angulo arguably shouldn't be fighting anymore. But okay, they wanted to give it one more chance. They're going to do this little mini eliminator. If that doesn't work out, maybe it's just as well it didn't work out. I mean, I, I guess this means probably, in practice, Truax is probably going to go on and fight one of those guys. They probably won't do another eliminator, just risking you know another injury or another weird outcome. I think they'll probably just put Truax in with one of those guys. And uh, Hernandez will probably just kind of slip away. Well, I think you could still do Truax versus Angulo. You just don't do it for an eliminator. Like, it shouldn't have been an eliminator in the first place. Like, I get... Um, there's four sanctioning bodies like guys like this are going to get ranked and possibly get title shots there's just too many slots to be filled for it to always be perfect and to always get great matchups okay but um, you know I think this is the better uh, the better outcome um, because I don't think Angulo looked bad in this fight and what I mean by that is like did Angulo look any worse than he's looked recently no you know, one thing I'll give Angulo credit for is, like, this dude, his punch resistance isn't going away. Like, we've seen guys who, you know, were um, not so defensive over the course of their careers. And as they get older, like, they just can't take punches, especially sustained punishment. Like, Mike Alvarado ain't taking shots like this the way Alfredo Angulo did. And um, Angulo just, that dude's got a hard head or something. Like, he just took a ton of punches in this fight. And kept coming. So, I think you can still make that true X fight. It's not like anybody's going to remember that Angulo lost this fight. He's got seven losses. What 
you know, eight, like, so what? You know, who's going to split hairs between seven and eight losses? So I hope if it's not the end that they do one of these matchups like this where it's like you can make sense of a Truax versus Angulo, but progressing Angulo any higher up, you know, that's just not necessary at this point in time. Uh, on the undercard, nothing else really stood out to me. Justin Paldo looked pretty decent, but, you know, I'm not sure where he's at. I mean, he's still pretty low in the development level. Um, yeah, nothing else stood out to me. The cornflake fight was interesting. Uh, the commenta- commentary was a little biased towards cornflake, and it kind of, at least in my experience, shocked them when cornflake lost the fight when it was kind of clear to me that cornflake was losing the fight so um moving on tim to zoo I, I i don't know if that's the right way to say that but zoo i can't say that um tim yeah just zoo zoo he i sound like timothy bradley right here he forced <laughs> jeff horn to quit after he got battered my 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 what do you think I don't know what to say about Tazu because I think Jeff Horn is um, like, you know, the question I, I pose here is like, what's Jeff Horn's legacy going to be? And my my answer to that is Jeff Horn is the perfect, perfect, perfect explanation or the, the like demonstration of someone in boxing who got their 15 minutes. Jeff Horn got that decision over Manny Pacquiao, a decision that he probably shouldn't have gotten. Uh, you know, he never should have been allowed to be ahead in that fight, but Jeff Horn was able to really bully Manny Pacquiao and just throw him around the ring. He's like a, a welterweight, I'm not Runron. And fights where he hasn't been able to do that, he's gotten demolished. Jeff or uh, Terrence Crawford clowned him. And we saw Zoo say, I'm not falling for that. And so Jeff Horn's going to be a legacy, like, you know, just one of those, he had his little moments, like, oh, yeah, that guy was a welterweight champion one time. You know, he beat Manny Pacquiao, but you kind of laugh because it's like, yeah, but he got embarrassed the rest of his career. So that's how I feel about Jeff Horn. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it really just feels like the Manny, Pac- Manny Pacquiao fight was the outlier. You know, going into the Manny Pacquiao fight, you saw why top rank chose that fight. Because Horn, even though he was undefeated at the time, had been hurt in a bunch of his fights against very low-level opponents. You know, on paper, he just, you know, didn't look like a good fight. On video, he didn't look like uh, a good opponent. You know, a good, good quality fighter. Looked like he was ripe to lose. And I think, you know, probably if you're trying to put the pieces together from what Manny Pacquiao has done before and since, he, he, you know, probably just didn't care about that fight at all. Just didn't take it seriously. That 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 really seems to be probably the record of what happened because Horn really hasn't done anything outside of that performance. Pacquiao didn't seem to care at all during that promotion. You know, he he acted like he was on vacation or something. And um, you know, okay, Horn got that win, and then you know everything else has been downhill from there. So, yeah, I think mean, that's a good way to put it. There was. A blip in the radar for Manny Pacquiao, who maybe his interest really waned at that point in time in boxing. I don't know what to think of Sue because as I've laid out pretty clearly, I'm not a fan of Jeff Horn. I don't think Jeff Horn, you know, Jeff Horn is a guy like he's a, he's a competent fighter, but I, he, he don't got really good skills to me. And um, Zoo looks like he's got some skills, but I really don't know how he fares against like legit 154 pound competition. Uh, okay, the WBO is moving forward. 
I love this story. With Emmanuel Navarrete and Ruben Villa, and they're going to fight for the vacant uh, featherweight title, which Shakur Stevenson formerly held. Um, Jesse Magdaleno was technically supposed to fight for this, and he priced himself out of fighting Navarrete because he did not want to get paid 100000 or somewhere around that for the fight. He wanted more, so top rank, like, very publicly and blatantly uh, shamed him, I think is a good way to put it. You know, they really just dragged his name last night during yeah, the broadcast. Yeah, accurate. <laughs> and so, do you think that this is a better matchup, Navarrete versus Villa, than it would have been if it was Magdaleno versus Villa? I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to the fight more. I mean, there's no question. I mean, Ruben Villa is not, doesn't strike me as a superstar, but he was a very good amateur. I've seen him fight on Showbox a bunch. He has a lot of experience for a fighter at his age and his, um, you know, number of fights in his career. So, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it, as opposed to, to Jesse Magdaleno, who was, you know, in a, in a prior iteration of Top Rank right before they left HBO. They were, you know, talking about their next generation, which was Magdaleno, Zerto, um, Oscar Valdez. And, yeah, I think, you know, it was those three guys who was going to be the next generation. Yeah, I'm trying to think Verdejo had already Andy kind of sputtered at that point. Um, but Ruiz yeah, is already like, showing the signs. Yeah, I don't even know if Ruiz was fighting on HBO, though. This was like right in no, sort of the last on HBO. Top, yeah, of top rank on HBO, where they were sort of trying to figure out if they could get these guys to be headliners. And it, it kind of just ended up not really working out and saying into the top rank deal. But yeah, I mean, Magdaleno got pretty embarrassed against Dogve, who in turn got knocked out by Navarrete. So, you know... He hasn't really done anything significant since then. Um, just didn't really care that much about that fight. It just looked on paper like an, e- an easy win. Ruben Vieira to me is just a more interesting fighter, so that's fine. Regarding the thing about the publicly shaming him, yeah, that's just weird. Like, you know, if your job is to promote a fighter, it's weird that you're then, you know, it's sort of reminiscent of Bob always shitting on Rigandau. It's like, it, you know, it's like to an extent of, of like, violating like your fiduciary duty to that person as your your fighter it's it's a little weird um yeah and they played some games on that where they said he was offered two hundred thousand, but he said he was only offered one hundred thousand. so then they offered him you know i don't know um in practice i don't know how much more money he's holding out for but i mean this is such small ball and it's it's so weird how the, the 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 market of the sport has changed so quickly where like you know, a year ago, Matchroom was throwing so much money at shitty fights, and now Top Rank is getting, you know, let's, let's be honest, they can't afford Jesse Magdaleno as an opponent for Navarrete. Like, that is the, that is the boxing economy that, that Top Rank is working with right now. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about this is that, um, first of all, Magdaleno shouldn't be in the position to fight for this title. I'll say that straight out. Uh, Ruben Villa should be the number one guy at 126. He should have gotten a title shot a long time ago. And I thought that they were going to screw him out. But Ruben Villa, funnily enough, signed with Jose Ramirez's manager. And that's interesting here because I think Jose Ramirez's manager is a yes man for top rank. He even said something about this to me on Twitter, and I don't give a shit because I think that he is. Because, funnily enough, Ruben Villa signs with uh, Jose Ramirez's manager, 
And very quickly, he's got himself that opportunity to fight for um, to fight on the top ranked card, which you know that that alone is interesting. And the fact that he just accepted anything means that they're probably paying him the same, if not less, than Magdaleno, which leads me to believe that you're potentially not that great of a manager. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I love the matchup for Villa because, despite you know the fact that I don't think he's going to be taken care of very well. I do think that he is going to easily win this fight. Um, the only way is if Navarrete is, you know, going to come in a much bigger featherweight and that's going to add some power and he can get to Via. I think Via is going to outbox him very easily. If possibly Navarrete can start using his size in there, um, all bets are off. And Via does not have the power to really get respect in fights. He's just a guy that's a very good boxer. So I like the fight. I think it's a, one of those fights that stylistically is going to... You, you got two completely different types of fighters. And it's either going to lead to fireworks or we're going to see a really great performance out of Ruben Villa. And if this fight turns into you know an exciting one, that is not good for Ruben Villa. Um, but yeah, I don't have much more to say about this. It sucks for Jesse Magdaleno you know, to get dragged like this. I expect that there's more behind the scenes that we don't know about. You know, Magdaleno's brother got cut by top rank. He lost one or two fights. I think he had two losses on his on his record. I think he lost to Roman Martinez once. I think that might have been in Macau. And then the second time he lost was to Teofimo, maybe? Let's look at Yeah, he Magdaleno. did fight to Teofimo. In, yeah, in like, the famous fight where Teofimo, like, pantomime throwing dirt on his body... And Jesse and this was before got, he got cut, I think, or no, after he got cut. So they brought him back. So he lost to yeah, Terry Flanagan, and, like, and after Jesse he lost to Terry really Flanagan, said about in the ring, you know, yeah, yeah, he had already lost to Terry Flanagan. So Flan- after he lost to Flanagan, he got cut, and that's when he went and fought on a Golden Boy card. Then he had a couple of fights in Mexico before he came back to fight Tiafimo. So I don't know, po- possibly there's some like bad blood there from from Jesse uh, towards Top Rank. You know, maybe not thinking that they didn't really take care of his brother or something. I don't know. Right, I mean, they treated him like total garbage. Yeah, and and that 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 was um yeah, that did seem to be the case, yeah. But yeah, I, that, I like the fight. I, and it was not happy with top rank. I kind of hate the WBO's rule that like the, the if you're a champion and you move up in weight, you automatically get to fight for the title. I think you should automatically be put in in an eliminator, but not necessarily given that easy of a pathway to the title. I think it leads to some situations where guys uh, become multi-division champions, and it's like, not really, you know, it's, it doesn't have that same ring of authority to it that um, that it should, you know, it, the path, it just seems like the, you're, you're given a path that's way too easy to get to that sort of four or five division champion. Anyway, well, I, didn't, I mean, especially Magdaleno, I mean, was primarily a 122-pound fighter. So it's like you take your 122-pound champion... And then you move him up a division and have him fight a guy who's primarily been a 122-pound fighter. So it's like, what's really happening? You're just not making the guys cut as much weight. You know, it's not really accomplishing that much. Yeah, and like Navarrete, just evaluate his run at 122, and it was really the equivalent of just like ho-hum. You know, like he had some good wins, and he stopped some guys and all this stuff. But like Navarrete does not really have, outside of beating dog bait, like what did he do at 122? I would, I think it's safe to say that 
there ain't many boxing fans out there, probably we can count them on our hands, that can name every single person Navarrete's fought in his, in his run at 122 with the WBO title. I don't think you could. No, you <laughs> no definitely not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, okay, Ivan Branchek and Jose Zapata, they are going to be fighting now on October 3rd. Which, look, this is a good fight. I love the fight. I think it's going to be a fun one. But I do want to pose you know, maybe a little bit of a conspiracy theory here. So, to me, there's like some funny business around this fight. Because Branchek was already supposed to fight Jose Zapata. And then he pulled out. Is it Zapata or is it Sacedo? No, Zapata. And um, so he was supposed to fight Zapata. But then he pulled out with an injury, and that fight got got canceled, and Jose Zapata wound up fighting like Kendo Castaneda or something like that. So when Branchik pulled out of that fight, very shortly afterwards, we started to hear rumors about potentially Branchik fighting Prograde. And so that seemed kind of like it didn't really make that much sense. It's like, wait, you're injured and you pulled out of this fight with Zapata. But now you're suddenly okay to work on a deal to fight Prograde? And then that fight would obviously have t- taken place uh, on Dazen. And and then I think we there was even like a rumor that Showtime might have been trying to bid on that fight if it were to come up. And then, but obviously we know that no fights are happening on Dazen. And then Prograde signs with PBC. So isn't doesn't this seem... Am I off base by thinking that maybe... Branchik has come back to the table trying to do this fight even uh, after trying to maybe get that pro-grade fight? Like, am I just a conspiracy theorist here? It doesn't seem like that bizarre of a conspiracy theory. I mean, at one point, Ludabella was promoting both pro-grade and Branchik. So, you know, they, I think there was some version of this where maybe Debella was trying to pitch that fight around and Prograde just ended up going in a different direction. You know, part of him signing with the PBC was breaking from Devella. And I, I don't know all of Baranchik's details. I mean, he has a different... Um, he's with uh, Split T, I believe, which is primarily with Top Rank. So it seems like kind of a more natural fit he would end up over there anyway. Whereas uh, Prograde has had different management. Yeah, so... I, I just don't think there's that much to read into it. Like, you know, that that could have had to do with the Lou DiBella of it, that Lou DiBella was making offers, but the sort of the management side ended up being like, no, let's let's go over to top rank. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think it's a major story anyway, but I thought I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, this is kind of funny. Anyway, we can move on. There's not much to talk about here. This is a good fight, but it's not happening until October. And so we'll talk about this at some point later. Um, Freddie wrote, she came out this week and he just said outright, Manny Pacquiao is not fighting this year. Now, that's interesting because we've heard for months about negotiations but that Bob Arum has been having with, quote-unquote, Manny Pacquiao's people and uh, a fight for Terrence Crawford. We also heard this week that Terrence Crawford had, his team had offered Kelbrook $1.5 million for a fight and Jose Cito Lopez had already turned the fight down. So there's a lot of things here. Um, first and foremost is like, who do you think Bob Arum was negotiating with if Manny Pacquiao, from all we know now, is not fighting this year? We already probably knew this. Bob Arum probably knew this because he promoted Manny Pacquiao and knew the, the schedule for his Senate uh, duties. Sean Gibbons has always like maintained, like, you know, ain't nothing happening over here with this Manny Pacquiao turns Crawford stuff. So then that leads me to question, like, well, what was Bob Arum doing? <laughs> so where you come in? 
Explain to me. Yeah. What was yeah. Bob doing? I mean, it's when uh, a promoter is talking to the entire world on social media, but their audience is one man in Terrence Crawford, you know, trying to convince him and Bomac and give Bomac ammunition to convince Crawford that there's a magical Manny Pacquiao fight happening, which is never going to happen. I mean, this was interesting with um, Sean Gibbons had been a little cheeky about this earlier, but he, he started to get very pointed in just saying basically like, you know, this has never happened. This is not something I'm going to joke about anymore. Like, let's be clear there. There have not been any negotiations for this fight. You know, Bob Arum had been saying this was going to be the Daniel Kinahan connection to get a fight in the Middle East with uh, Crawford and Progray. Then, you know, <laughs> Daniel Kinahan fell out of favor, at least in public. Uh, then uh, Bob Arum was still negotiating with, you know, countries, but he couldn't reveal who the countries were. It was all a ridiculous charade. I mean, you know, we've talked about before about how there are problems with Canelo's contracts, how there are problems with Dazen's business model. There's problems with Crawford's contract with Top Rank right now. You know, let's be clear. He's got a very high minimum. Top Rank doesn't have a good way to monetize him right now in terms of making up for that minimum. The PBC basically has a complete monopoly on reasonable opponents in the division. Um, you know, you also have Terrence Crawford in a position where he's been out of the ring for a while. And it's starting to look like he, you know, might be realistic for him to just sit out the rest of his contract where he, you know, could have a lot more options at the PBC side of the street. So, you know, it's funny because I think about this is thing Lex and I had talked about a lot over the course of the fall. Every time Bob Arum would say something or, you know, Sean Gibbons would make a joke about it, you know, we would kind of be trying to read into it way more than we really should for the amount of information available. But it's really just come to a head and been revealed. It's just, you know, this is this is Bob Arum trying to convince Crawford that he has a big fight for him. The fight does not exist. And, you know, Sean Gibbons and Freddie Roach have just started to really just lay it out like, no, like Bob Arum, stop trying to, you know, lay out a narrative that does not exist. You know, it's not happening. Stop saying that. Yeah. I mean, it is bizarre to me why they would even do that if, I mean, there's two things here that you could accomplish. One, you you kind of win over the boxing fans who are the hardcore fans that are actually aware of the ongoing back and forth negotiations. I mean, here's the thing. I, I have a, a a family member who I talk about talk with on a pretty regular basis, and they're casual boxing fans. So I always get a good sense of like what is breaking through to the casual boxing fan uh, and what isn't. And this story whatsoever is not breaking through at all because he has not asked me about it one time. He's asked me about Canelo. He says, there's something funny. You know, how come Canelo wasn't fighting on his date? You know, that much he knows. But this is not working. This is on, this only works on the hardcore boxing fans. And I think this is the... the um, the target audience. And if you think about it, like, you know, Carl Moretti and Evan Korn and Bruce Champler are all on Twitter and they're really just trying to get the likes and see on their timeline, you know, they don't even follow that many people, but they think that they've got their finger on the pulse of all of boxing, which, you know, probably this is not accurate. But anyway, uh, the Kell Brook thing is hilarious to me because 1.5 for Kell Brook. I mean, there's two ways to look at this. Like one, so Kell Brook's going to get paid more than Teofimo Lopez to fight Lomachenko. And then B, um, why would you bring up Jose Cito Lopez? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, are you trying to tell me, like, think about this, okay? 
Top Rank is trying to say, well, we were negotiating with Manny Pacquiao, okay? Which they weren't, but they said that. They don't want to go the route of Keith Thurman. They don't want to go the route of Sean Porter. But the route that they did want to go through is Jose Cito Lopez, so, so much so that they reached out. Like, yeah, Jose Cito Lopez turned the fight down. Yeah, because he's probably not not cool with being another punching bag for $1 million or whatever they were going to pay him. So... I really don't understand um, why they this came out. Like, the, I mean, we could say like, okay, well, Top Rank didn't put didn't leak this. Maybe it was Matchroom side, and they were trying to get a better deal than the 1.5 that they were putting out there. Maybe I could roll with that. But I just think that this whole story is so ridiculous, and like, they really just need to go dark and negotiate Crawford's fight before they embarrass him by having these names leak out where it's like why are these the guys that are in the running to fight terrence crawford terrence crawford is supposed to be one of the pound for pound best fighters in the world this ain't helping him and it doesn't help when every time terrence crawford comes to fight oh i mean maybe it does because they want terrence crawford to think that um nobody wants to fight him but the reality is they don't want to pay for the level of opponent that terrence crawford should be fighting so I mean, it's such a mess to me that they, they keep doing this back and forth. I mean, this is one of the things that I hate the most about following boxing closely is promoters who think that the best thing to do is to negotiate in public. That is just irritating to me. Yeah, God. I mean, everything about this is so weird, right? I mean, yeah, you mentioned the Tiafimo Lopez thing. I mean, it's also just... You know, uh, once again, it's unbelievable how much the boxing market has changed from a year ago when, you know, you have a combination of days in being flush with cash and now, you know, really just looking like they're they're sort of trying to make a soft exit from the market. And also you add COVID into that, you know, and you have Kel Brook, who, you know, last year, Amir Khan top rank paid five million dollars for Amir Khan versus Terrence Crawford. And seven million and Dazen paid seven million dollars for Mikey Garcia against Jesse Vargas. You know, uh, Jose Ramirez. You know, it was, it's been phrased very pointedly, but I guess Top Rank got paid four million dollars for Jose Ramirez to fight Maurice Hooker, off which Jose Ramirez got some of that money. And now you're talking about a million and a half for Kel Brook, who, you know, theoretically got in the neighborhood of you know someone can correct me, but in the neighborhood of five million to fight Golovkin, in the neighborhood of five million to fight Spence. You know both of those were pay-per-views in the uk it's like uh what's going on here i mean it's it's so weird because you know one you'd think he'd be embarrassed by the offer you know one less than a third of what khan got to fight crawford and you know a fraction of what he had made in those earlier fights i mean is it like is he so broke he would even consider that or you know as as you've said i mean is this just pure theater Right. I mean, is this just some way of saying we're considering Kelbrook before we don't take that fight? Because, you know, I said again, like you did a great job of breaking this down on the daily, but it's not like Kelbrook has a huge profile in the U.S. I mean, that's something I'll always talk about as it relates to people talking about Josh Taylor or Callum Smith and Billy Joe Saunders and really overrate their profiles in the U.S. and their economic powers as as they relate to having fights in the U.S. It just um, I, I, I don't get it. Um Kelbrook is not a huge, you know, it's like that doesn't solve any problem. Like Terrence Crawford has a huge minimum. And then you have Kelbrook, who you think is also going to command a lot of money. It like, and wouldn't seem to draw that much. You know, it's like he's most known for getting knocked out by Errol Spence at this point. Maybe, you know, and Golovkin, I guess you had both of those fights. But 
he has a win over Sean Porter, but years and years ago at this point, you know, two broken eye sockets ago, a bad performance in his last fight ago, you know, um, it's just weird. Like nothing makes sense. Um, further thoughts. One thing I'll give top rank credit for, and this isn't a credit like really, but they have done a great <laughs> job credit, yeah. at like resetting the market. And what I mean by that is like, you're right. They paid Amir Khan $5 million, but you add in the fact that COVID is hit and they have taken advantage and they've severely um, reset the market, you know, two years ago or even last year, I would imagine that Lomachenko and Tiafimo get more money than they're actually going to get for this fight. And I know that there's no crowd, but um, top rank has been operating like they've not been able to draw crowds for a while. And that's from, you know, that's them talking, not me. You know, I think they're, I think their complaints about crowds are, they would know better, but I think they're kind of dumb because there's still people that show up to their fights. I mean, just promote a little better. So, but they've reset the market and this is exactly what they wanted. And they're paying less for these fights than they would have normally, or they would have a year ago. And I think that this has been a great move by them. They're certainly making the shrewd business move to reset this market at the expense of the fighters, but it looks like they're going to succeed. And that is going to be good for them because, you know, they had Eddie Hearn out here spending like crazy to get really low level fights that didn't deliver anything. Well, top rank's going to spend low for fights that will deliver something. So I'll give them credit for that. That was a, yeah, you, you raise an interesting point that I feel like hasn't been discussed too much in the sport. But yeah, I mean, right. I mean, it's it's the state of the market, but it's also the state of market in the context of you have a lot of fighters who potentially are living lifestyles they can't afford, who have been spending a lot of money without being able to get paid. You know, I mean, that was something that Victor, po uh, not Victor Postal, Jose Ramirez mentioned, you know, the thing of basically like doing all these training camps and not getting paid all year. You know, it's not like these promoters that were giving the fighters like stipends when they couldn't work during COVID, you know, if, if their expectations on their, their lifestyle is to get paid twice a year. I mean, you, you, you'd always hope that boxers are thinking about, you know, living at relatively low, you know, burn rates and are, are, are just banking that money, putting it into investment properties, whatever, putting in mutual funds, but it's rarely the case, or, or they might even just have business ventures. You know, maybe some of them, maybe someone wants to like start a restaurant like Stephen Fulton and get COVID, you know, <laughs> but you know, they, they're, they're looking for that check so they can like move ahead with that business venture, you know, whatever. But I mean, you have a lot of fighters who are kind of desperate, you know, it's like, think of Spence fighting Danny Garcia. I mean, that's probably going to lose out on, you know, a few million dollar gate versus if they waited six months to do it. But there's a thing of just, you know, we're getting older. We're losing this prime off of our years. This is money we can't make back. And maybe to some extent, again, there's financial pressure involved. And, and you start to see fighters making moves which they would, you know, never have thought of before. So, yeah, Top Rank is being extremely aggressive in in doing this. You know, as, as you say, resetting the market, I mean, it's a good way to put it. And, you know, um, it, it is sort of interesting as it relates to Dazen again, because, like, Fighters who have said, okay, well, you know, Dazen, you offered me X amount of money a year ago. How could I possibly accept this now? Very quickly, the reality is going to start to set in, you know, as you're talking about with top rank. They're just saying this is how much you're going to get paid or you're not going to fight, you know. And a lot of fighters are going to have to, you know, swallow their pride and do that for, you know, just because of financial motivation. So, 
it's it's unfortunate, but I think um, those J Prince signings you know. were all desperation moves. Well, I don't want to say that people were desperate, but th- that was like um, he preyed upon people who were vulnerable to COVID, not like the actual virus, because obviously I think everyone's vulnerable to get it. But the effects of you know a shutdown and not being able to make money. That's where I think that's what a lot of those signings were. Um, including F.A. Ajagba, who, you know, hadn't fought for a while, didn't get paid a lot of money as his last fight. And, uh, you know, signing bonuses are pretty good if you ain't working. So we'll leave it there. Um, I talked a lot about this last week on one of the daily podcasts, uh, which you mentioned. If you don't know what that is, that's our Patreon feed. Uh, you can go get access to more podcasts over there, patreon.com slash Puncher. And uh, so let's talk about the fights from next week. Although I do want to say, you know, I do, we don't usually do commercials. Like, you know, I don't other podcasts will do like a, a, a like a full read for like, you know, blah, blah, blah about this podcast. And I will say we talked a little bit about this beforehand. Tom didn't like one of the episodes I did too much because I spent 45 minutes or something. I don't know what it was. Talking well, I don't about think I said that Gilberto in terms of Ramirez. It, it yeah. seemed like you didn't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely questioned what I was doing. But yes, I, it was more like, "Are you out of your mind?" More than not liking it. But I yeah. thought I thought that that was really entertaining. At least I was entertaining myself. But I don't I mean, know. Clearly, you just kept going on and on and on. But I like, did talk about a lot of other things. I talked. I, I talked about the UFC. I talked about contract stuff in all of sports and and um, what, what is what is what I'm looking for here? Like, you know, exploit contracts that are exploitative and things like that uh there was a lot of different directions and there was a lot of talk about gilberto ramirez and not all of it was good like if you're not a fan of gilberto ramirez you probably would enjoy it uh although tom doesn't is not a fan of gilberto ramirez so maybe tom doesn't like that i uh said some mean things about the ufc i don't know uh, anyway, I was like, what were we even talking about? Oh, we're just going to preview the stuff for next week. Yeah. So not, not too yeah. much going on next week. Uh, Jamel Herring is going to be headlining a card, uh, on ESPN plus against Jonathan Aquendo. Aquendo, good fighter. Um, you know, I, I, in a vacuum, I think this is a bad fight. Okay. Jamel Herring is a WBO champion. He's successfully defended his title quite a few times now. And Aquendo's a guy that we we really know what his level is, and it's just like he's like, all right, you know, you're definitely gatekeeper level, contender level, but we know what happens when you step up. But I will put forward this: I don't think that this is a bad fight, and the reason why, and like Jamel Herring came at me on Twitter for this, and I was like, bro, what the fuck are you talking about? Oh, I. I, I just forgot I was on a podcast right now. <laughs> but I was like, I, I just pointed out, like, Jamel Herring was in a really close fight against Lamont Roach. Lamont Roach heard him at the end of the fight. Like, yeah, Jamel Herring won, like, a one more round or, or two more rounds or so. But, like, that wasn't a fight where Jamel Herring clearly walked out of that looking good. He didn't look, you know, come out of that smelling like roses. He came out of there looking like, hey, this guy can be hurt. This guy was badly hurt and almost gotten out of there. And yeah, he won enough rounds that he banked it. But when you walk out of that fight, Jamel Herring didn't look good. His stock went down. And his stock wasn't that high to begin with. And you add that up and say Jonathan Aquendo's a veteran who's been around for a long time. I think it's better now, actually, that the fight has been delayed twice 
because I don't know what kind of shape Jonathan Aquendo would have came in if he came in during the summer series when it was supposed to happen because we saw the, the state of most of the opponents during the summer series. They didn't look good. What was his name? Um, Omar Juarez came in and that dude looked like he was legit lawyering for the past uh, three months and not <laughs> training. And if you don't, you know, you don't know what I'm talking about because not many people watch that fight. Omar Juarez is actually a lawyer in Mexico. And they were like, yeah, this dude's a, yeah, they were talking about that on the broadcast. Like, oh, yeah, he's a lawyer. And he fights. So, um, yeah, I think this is going to be a much better matchup now that they, they've been given time. I hope um, Herring, who had COVID, doesn't exhibit any, like, you know, ill symptoms out of having it. You know, gassing late or I don't know what potential effects. Well, well, did he ever even, like, fully cop to having it? I thought he was still saying it was false positive. Dude, he positive. tested positive, like, several times. Like, I, I'm cool with, like, going with false positive. Michaela Mayer, false positive. Cool, okay. Um, Angel Barrientes, probably a false positive. Maybe Robert Garcia, false positive. But a Quen- or Herring tested positive multiple times. Like, bro, you, you and you were hanging around with Terrence Crawford, who thought the virus was some hoax that was created to control <laughs> people? Like, come on, bro. Like, uh, Tom, you know somebody that's that, you know, experienced the effects of COVID? So I would imagine... That Terrence Crawford, you know, that little crew right there, there's a high likelihood that someone came down with COVID. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, I don't really have a lot to add to that, but it's like, yeah, it, it, we'll see if there was an Wait, effect I, on that. I Her- thought Herring did talk about, like, he felt weak and stuff like that at some point. So... I, I someone will correct us, but I, I thought he was still denying you. No one's going to correct us because nobody was watching those Summer Series cards. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just me being like, why am I spending another evening watching these cards? Like, these guys clearly, yeah, never mind. Um, on the on Fox, this is actually on Sunday. Okay, this is on Sunday, Sunday evening. There's some. There's a good reason why this fight is happening on Sunday. Your Dennis Ugas will fight for the WBA. WBA. I'm over here sounding like Timothy Bradley today. The WBA welterweight title against Abel Ramos. Now, why is this fight on Sunday? You may be wondering, why is this on Sunday? I will tell you why. PBC has gotten some dreadful lead-ins. Like, you want to talk about PBC's ratings, and they've done two cards on Fox now, and both underperformed the Sean Porter card and the, um, God, who fought last week? Whoever. Sean Porter was last week. It was, um, uh... They've done two, oh, Jamal James. Sorry, I, I messed up. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um... The, the, they did. They didn't do very good ratings. And if you look at the lead-ins, their lead-ins were miserable. Um, right. They grew week, over the course of the broadcasts and grew on their lead-ins. Yeah. Well, last week Sean Porter's lead-in was a soccer game featuring two LA teams. So, like, obviously that nobody cares about that outside of the city of LA. Uh, and then this week, Arizona Delora as a lead-in got paid programming. Yeah. <laughs> paid programming. Yeah. That's not good, okay? So next week, though, your Dennis Ugas is going to fight on Sunday. And do you know what the lead-in is going to be? Please tell me. The NFL season preview on Fox. Okay. So now it makes sense why you put that on Sunday. Because when I looked at this, I was like, why is this card on a Sunday? The funny thing is, like, I even spotted an error. I'm like, when they first aired the graphic to announce that fight, I'm like, why does it say Saturday, but the date's on the Sunday? And so, yeah, they're going to get the NFL preview show as their lead-in, which is going to be 
the first time that they've been back since that they've actually had a pretty decent lead in. We expect that that will do ratings. And I mean, bigger topic uh, I'm going to throw out here, but we don't have to really discuss it. Networks are dying for the NFL to come back. Like it, they are expecting to see a renaissance in the ratings. And I think I talked about this on one of the dailies this week, but um, the ratings are suffering on TV all across the board. Doesn't matter except for golf. Uh, but ratings are not doing so hot. And the reason for that, many believe, is that the NFL is no has been nowhere to be seen. And so with the NFL's return, there is a hope that all the ratings across the board are going to go up. And certainly you would imagine if you've got 13 million people watching a game and you start advertising your programs like WWE SmackDown, some PBC fight uh, coming up, that may do well for the card. Although it's kind of funny because this Ugas card is going to have the lead in and then there's not another PBC card until November on Fox. So interesting. Anyway, um... You want to talk about the fight? What do you think about Ugas versus Ramos? Yeah, I like Ugas versus Ramos a lot. I mean, Ugas, I think fans know he's reasonably in the top five or six at 147. You know, arguably beat Sean Porter, uh, absolutely destroyed Ray Robinson, who went on to have a bunch of other good fights since then. Um, yeah, he, he's just been putting on good performances. He, you know, if you remove the Sean Porter fight, He's undefeated since 2014 as the only fighter to beat Jamal James, who Jamal James's stock keeps going up. So, you know, we, we, we like your Dennis Ugas. He's also just one of the best guys on boxing Twitter. You know, he's just just a feel good story. He's, he's really made a lot out of his life, turned his career around completely uh, going back to uh, 2014 when he had lost the last time prior. So he's he's a known commodity. And on paper, it kind of seems like, OK, he's going to put on a good performance rank him roughly the same as like Sean Porter. So you say, who's Abel Ramos? Abel Ramos is a guy who's pretty good. He's maybe like uh, somewhere in the the top 20 to 30 range. He's not amazing, but he's been in a bunch of wars and he's performed well in those fights. He had an absolute war, just an amazing fight. I always try to tell people to go watch against Ivan Branchik a few years ago. Uh, had a very close fight with Jamal James, which was a war. And, you know, he's just been racking up wins since then. Had uh, an undefeated, uh, not an undefeated, but a guy, you know, mild upset win against Brian Perel in his last fight. Brian Perel's, like, last chance to try to do something. Uh, prospect who kept getting upset. Hard to call them upsets at this point. But anyway, so Abel Ramos, action pack guy, pretty good guy. It's not like... Um, Ugas is necessarily going to go in there and, and blow him out. Ramos really doesn't know how to fight unless he's getting into a war. Um, I think it's going to be an entertaining fight. It's probably going to end up being a showcase fight for Ugas, but Ugas is good. You know, if if it were a terrible fighter hmm, something's fighting... Something's happening with your microphone. I don't know what's going on. It seems like, it feels like it's like almost not plugged in all the way. I don't know. Hmm. I'm not doing anything different. Now it sounds good. Hmm. Okay, well, that's unfortunate. Should I redo any of that? No, I mean, we can hear what you're saying, but it was just a little bit of clicky. Yeah, just just keep going. Yeah, let me know if it comes up again. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so anyway, should be an action-packed fight. Yes, Ugas is the favorite, and he'll probably win. But it's like, it's it's a good opponent and a good style matchup. I think it's going to be a good fight. And, you know, as someone who's just at this point just a fan of Ugas, I mean, I'll just tune in for Ugas. Um, Again, I I, I like the, the matchmaking. Um, 
Yeah, I I think it's an okay fight. I I love Ugas. Um, Ramos is a fun guy. I don't think he's necessarily um, gonna give Ugas trouble, but I would not be shocked if he did. You know, uh, even though those things are kind of contradictory, I just think that Ramos has something special to him where he might take a risk that is going to completely backfire, but I think he's one of those guys that's that's willing to sell out and hope for something big to happen. And I don't think Ugas is like an excellent fighter at everything. He's just a, a fighter who's good at everything. And so I think that there's potential that Ramos could do something here and that could really put Ugas or... Ugas has looked very dominant as of lately. And even in the Sean Porter fight, you can even say that he did very well to account himself there. Because in that loss, I think he gained more than he would have than if he had won the fight. Like, obviously, if he'd have won the fight, he could have had better opportunities going forward. But I do think that it brought a lot of attention that wasn't going to come his way. I mean, if he had beaten Sean Porter, the conversation would have been about Sean Porter losing, not Ugas winning the fight. So... Ugas, if he wins this fight, the interesting thing is where do you go from here? And, um, you know, he's a tough fight for a lot of guys stylistically. And so I'm not really sure where where he would go if he won this fight. I think he's going to get a big fight should he win. He'll have a, a WBA title. I think the most logical thing is to do a Jamal James rematch, which um, I think would probably play out the same way it played out the first time. I think Jamal James has got a lot of defensive flaws that a guy like Ugas is smart enough to figure out. But, um, yeah, I'm excited to see what the undercard is because I have no clue what it is. There, there's nothing announced. (laughs) And I mean, there is an undercard, but like, you know, it's hidden. I thought I knew some of the fights, but I know one fight fell through. So I'm really curious to see what is going to happen on this card this week. Yeah, there's also an announced uh, prospect fight on the undercard, which is uh, I'm trying to look up his name now. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Jesus Ramos, who's well, been Abel's brother. I think I don't know. I, I just don't know that. But I'm he's pretty sure they're related. It'd be pretty funny. He's a, if they he's a good prospect related. who's uh, 12 and 0, 11 knockouts. Who's who's had some good knockouts on. You know, again, when we we're talking about Alvaro Rodriguez against very low level of opposition, but he, he's you know looked good at this stage of his career he's only 19 um you know cards like this are always fun if you have a few nice prospects Omar Juarez is also going to be on the card oh he is he's back already yeah Omar Juarez is going to be back I mean yeah he did fight I think he fought on the Jamal James card and um I don't know I think Omar Juarez is going to stay really active he was in Tank's camp um doing some sparring with Tank so I don't know Omar Juarez might be fast-tracking and he looks like he's developing all right that, you know, he might be up for the for the challenge. Yeah. So the, the point is, like, you know, I think we've set the stage well, which is, you know, Fox is giving a good platform for this in terms of the, the NFL lead in. Um, it's good. Good matchmaking in the main event should be exciting, even if uh, Ugas ends up taking over the fight. And we've got some, you know, prospects the PBC is really trying to push on the undercards. So this is a good one. So Bartholomew versus Poyo was supposed to be on the undercard for an interim super lightweight title, and that fight is not happening anymore. So, at least as far as I know, I could be wrong here. I could have got the wrong Bartholomew, but I'm pretty sure um, this fight is not going to be happening on this card. 
So um, it'll be interesting to see what that co-main event is going to be. We'll then, find out. You know, this is the era of COVID. A lot of uh, pieces, you know, chess pieces moving around on the board. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's it for this week's show. That is all we've got. It was, you know, after all those announcements, a lot of news is slowed down. I mean, the, what is the biggest story right now? Canelo's opponent? And that, we're not getting any news because I think they brought in the people who are doing the negotiating there or doing the dis- discussing there. Uh, that don't leak stuff. Yeah, both sides are taking that very seriously right now. So you know, Canelo's lawyers and Bulbatnik's lawyers. Yeah, so that is a, a little touchy. So that's it for this week. Tom, thanks for coming on. I hope you guys enjoyed boxing this weekend, even though there was a lot. Um, I, oh, yeah, we did mention Daniel Dubois, just making sure we did everything. If you if you like this podcast, you want to help us out, you should rate and review. We have a chat, a Discord chat. That's pretty cool if you ask me. A lot of chat in there. Um, message us on Twitter, Sunday underscore puncher, and we can hook you up with that. You can go to the Patreon, get more podcasts, patreon.com slash Sunday puncher. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. Sure. Got one funny thing at the end if uh... – <laughs> Oh, okay. Tom wants to tell one more story. Let's hear it, Tom. Yeah, I kind of missed my slot, but uh, yeah. No, I just I thought this was funny. One one note from the Jose Ramirez fight. Um, Ricky Merrigan, his manager, had been boasting about uh, how much money he was getting for his sponsorships coming in, mm-hmm. and he got kind of called out by John Nash for saying that. I, you know, I, I don't want to put words in Nash's mouth, but kind of called him out for the numbers that he was throwing out unrealistic, and Mer- Merrigan had to kind of walk it back ended up blocking some boxing fans who were who had raised this topic with him in the first place. Um, but I just, I, I, during the fight, I mean, did you notice what uh, the, the back of Ramirez's shorts, was that as noticeable to you as it was to me? The, like, small business sponsorships on his chunks? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, well, there was a specific one on the back, which was like... The pawn shop <laughs> like one? For, yeah, yeah, it was... Uh, um, yeah, Fresno. I'm sure a pawn shop is paying $100,000 to have their their name in a small from a small town in California on the trunks of a guy I, that, fighting that on TV. Kind of, that was kind of the punchline. The back of his trunk said Fresno coin, and a bunch of us were speculating what that was, if it was like something crypto-related like uh, pack coin. But yeah, ended up being uh, a, a pawn shop with the, their website very prominently talking about their pawn loan, so... That, 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 that was the hot sponsorship he had going. And anyway, mystery solved. It well, I'm glad hot... I'm not the one, or I didn't say the worst thing about Jose Ramirez's manager today. At least I didn't call him a liar. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> but yeah, any, anyway, I, I, I sort of, uh, I don't know if that was worth interrupting the ending of the show for, but that well, was just another good story. Um, yeah. See, I, I, what I'd also noticed was uh, during Arizona DeLaro's fight, that is, gigantic wba patch was just hanging off oh we also should mention probably the the moment of the the day was when they wanted victor polso's tape to be cut and marvin Samodio just went and bit it off i was like what oh, right. and, and joe tester had a great call yeah, there. he's yeah, like that yeah was really funny. The, the little dicey <laughs> with covid going around but all right <laughs> and he's like yeah, god bless him biting tape yeah fits into covid protocols yeah so anyway Thanks for listening. We will be back next week. Talk to you later, guys. Freddie knows Ramirez. Maria, 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 excuse me. Maria, Maria, oh my God. Maria, Ramirez is a... <laughs>